morning, everyone. Welcome to church. It's great to be with you and to um, kickstart a brand new series on the parables of the kingdom. You know, one of the major topics that Jesus, when he was on earth, spent the most time talking about was the kingdom of God. And the reason is because that was essentially what he came to bring. He came to establish and show us what the kingdom of God looked like through his teaching and through his ministry, the miracles that he did, the words that he said, how he treated people. All those were glimpses of what the kingdom of God was like. And over the next few weeks, we want to look at a few parables, a few stories, short stories that Jesus told about what the kingdom of God is like. And the reason why um, this is so important for us to know and to get familiar with is because if you are a Christian, you're part of this kingdom. So it's really important that you know, that we know, or at least reminded of, what kind of kingdom we belong to. And if you are not a Christian, if you don't believe any of this stuff, well, it's really important for you because this is what you're being invited to. Every time you come to church, every time you listen to a sermon, this is what we are inviting you to join and participate in. You're being invited to join and participate in the kingdom of God. And each of these parables, um, in each of these parables, Jesus is showing us uh, a side, a part of the kingdom of God. And today, we are looking at a parable, very interesting parable, the parable of the soils. Parable of the soils. Very well-known one. Maybe it's familiar to you. But if you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. We'll be looking at the parable of the soils. And the great thing about this parable is that there's an explanation for it. Jesus provides, he tells the parable, and then he goes, well, this is what it's all about. Right? So let's read that in Matthew chapter 13, verse 1 to 9. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, and thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Now we'll jump down to verse 18, where Jesus offers an explanation of what this parable is all about. Verse 18, listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in the heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling along uh, among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 100, 60, or 30 times what was sown. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we are hearing and sitting under, uh, at your feet today to listen to your words. And I pray that your words will sink in. I pray that our response today will be one of pure conviction to you, that we will receive that seed and it will bear fruit in our lives. So God, I pray, may we have ears to hear what you are saying to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. When we read this parable, and maybe you have read it before, sometimes we can look at it and go, well, which one am I? Which soil am I? Actually, I think these four types of soils represent four types of responses that any one of us can have whenever we hear the Word of God, or when we read Scripture, or when we study the Scripture. These are four responses that anyone any one of us can have whenever we come to the Lord and hear from Him. Four responses. And these are responses are because of the conditions of our heart. But these are four responses that we can have. And the first response that we can have is to think 
that what we've heard is just a nice story. It's just a nice story. There were people in Jesus' audience that day who heard this amazing teaching from Jesus, the Son of God, the great teacher, and walked away completely unchanged. Now, how could that be? This is Jesus, the greatest teacher, the greatest preacher, is the Son of God. He's teaching you, how could you possibly walk away unchanged? Well, the reason is simple. It's because all they heard was a nice story. All they heard was a nice story. Did you know there's such a thing as a secular Bible scholar? There are experts, experts in the Bible who know the Bible inside and out, how to interpret it, what it means, or its history, but do not believe a word of it. Isn't that incredible? How can there be such a thing? How can that person exist? It's because to them, the Bible is nothing more than ancient literature. It's nothing more than a history book. It's just a bunch of stories. It's just a bunch of stories, and they may admire it, they may appreciate it, but they don't believe it. They don't believe it. It doesn't do anything to them. But we know that the Bible is so much more than just a story to hear or simply admire. It invites us to experience the reality of the kingdom of God. The Bible is not just a nice story, it's a reality to experience. It's not just a nice story to listen to, to admire, to go, wow, that's really cool. Actually, what Scripture is inviting us to do, what God, through Scripture, is inviting us to do is to let our lives be transformed and shaped by it. And Christians, we are all susceptible to this, believe it or not. We can sometimes, without realizing it, start treating the Bible as little more than just a nice story. Let me know if this sounds familiar to any of you. It's part of your daily routine, especially part of the new year, right? You, part of your daily routine, you wake up, or maybe before you go to sleep, you open the Bible, maybe to a reading plan, and you read a passage, a verse, or maybe even a chapter of the Bible. You read it, you think about it, you say a quick prayer to God that you'll bless your day, or bless your night's sleep, and you carry on with your day completely unchanged. Sound familiar to any of you? You know, I've talked to people before, and very earnest Christians who really, really have a good habit of reading the Bibles daily, and they read the Bible daily, but they tell me that they don't get anything out of it. They leave completely unchanged. Now, how could that be? How can it be that we approach the living Word of God and walk away completely unchanged? Maybe our problem is that we are actually, without realizing it, treating the Bible as just a nice story. Perhaps without even realizing it, the words on the page have not sunk into our hearts and the stories we read have not transformed how we live. And what Jesus tells us about in this parable about when this happens is when the, when the seed of the truth fails to penetrate our hearts is that it is quickly taken away. What happens when we read scripture or listen to a sermon and we go, that was cool, that was quite nice. Maybe that was even entertaining. But then we walk away completely unchanged and carry on with our day. What happens? We forget about it. We forget about it. We dismiss it. It's done, it's gone, it's past. And this is what happens when words don't sink in, when the truth does not sink into our hearts. It's quickly whisked away. Is there anything that we can do about this? Is there anything that we can do about this? Absolutely, there is. There's something that we can do about it. We can, so to speak, cut, make a net, make a cover that covers the seed very quickly so that it's not quickly whisked away. How do we do this? We, if I can put it this way, we can make the shift to let the truth of the Word of God take up, let's allow it to take up rental space in our minds. Maybe what we can do as we start this new year is to allow, whenever we, um, listen to a sermon or read the Word of God, allow it to take up rental space in our minds for the day. What I mean by it is like this. Um, so many things occupy our minds throughout the day. You've got work to do, you've got projects you're involved in, you've got family, relationships, you've got friends, you've got hobbies, your own interests, your own desires, your own dreams, your own ambitions, your own plans for the day. And these all take up rental space in your minds and some take up more room than others. How much room does the Word of God take up? 
in the rental space of your mind. And maybe what we can do to allow the word of God, the seed of truth to sink in, just give it time to sink in, is to let it occupy some rental space in our minds for the day. And we do this by making a note on our phones or in our notepad or journal. We do this by maybe um, memorizing a verse that stuck out to us um, for the day. And we, we memorize it. And what we do with that is that we, throughout the day, just think about what that means. What it would mean if that truth, if that verse applied to your life. What would change? What would be different? What is the appropriate response to that verse, to that passage, to that truth? It could be as simple as, let's take for example, the gospel. The gospel is something that sometimes we take, away, take for granted. But what if you reflected on one truth of the gospel? How would that change your life? That Jesus Christ died, he rose again, and now you are alive in him. Maybe for the longest time you have been taking that for granted. What if you reflected on that for the day? You just reflected on that one thing and let it sink in. What would happen? What would happen? Well, gradually, over time, it would start to sink in beyond your mind and into your heart and it would start bearing fruit. Start bearing fruit. So maybe that's what we need to do. We need to stop just going to the Bible and go, okay, well, that's a nice story, that's great, sounds good to me, and then walk away and continue on with our day. What if we allowed the truth of God's word to a time to sink in and give it some rental space in our minds? And that's how we can do, that's what we can do to avoid the Bible, avoid the truth of God's word being just a nice story to us. That's the first soil. That's the first response that we can have to the Word of God. The second response that we could have is that we may just run on enthusiasm. Run on enthusiasm. Now that sounds good. Enthusiasm is really good. Passion is really good, all right? But what we see in this passage, in this parable, in this story, is that enthusiasm and passion is not enough. Enthusiasm and passion is not enough to sustain us. Throughout Jesus' ministry, there were many people, many times that people responded very enthusiastically and passionate to him. One guy came up to Jesus and said to him, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you stay, I will stay. What did Jesus, how did Jesus respond to him? Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Is that how you would respond? If someone went, wherever you go, I'm gonna go. No, you'd go, yes, amen, you're coming with me. You're gonna follow where, where I go and I'm gonna show you what it means to follow Jesus, right? But what did Jesus, how did Jesus respond? Do you know what you're asking? <laughs> Do you know what you're saying, young man? If you follow me, you're gonna live a life of discomfort, uncertainty, and insecurity. Do you realize that? One prominent disciple said to Jesus, Jesus, even if everyone deserts you, I'm gonna stand by you. And how did Jesus respond to that disciple? Peter, no you won't. In fact, what's gonna happen is you're gonna deny me, not once, not twice, but three times. When Jesus' popularity was at all time high, he had maximum influence in his ministry. What did Jesus decide to tell the crowd? Eat my flesh and drink my blood. And everyone left him. <laughs> Why did he do that? He was, Jesus had no concern, no interest in capitalizing on people's passion and enthusiasm for him. He had no interest in doing that because he knew there's a dark side to enthusiasm and passion. And it's that emotion quickly dries up under opposition. Emotion quickly dries up under opposition. There's this practice that the Navy employs whenever they deploy a submarine, is that they'll run it through a kind of stress test. They call it the integrity of the hull. What they'll do is whenever a submarine comes out of dry dock, meaning when it's first built, they'll run it through a test. And they'll bring, what they'll do is they'll bring the submarine down to some depth, 
a, a, quite a deep depth into the ocean to test how it responds. And by that test, they'll be able to see any weaknesses that are in the hull. If there's a poor weld or anything like that, if there's poor construction, it will show in that stress test. The pressure of the deep water will inevitably reveal that weakness. And what Jesus is acknowledging here is that every believer, everyone who says yes to Jesus will undergo some kind of stress test in their faith. Every single one of us. And this is very common, especially for those who have just come to Jesus or who have just took, taken their faith seriously. Maybe that's you. Maybe in the brand new year, you've gone, I'm gonna take my faith seriously. You know what is a common experience? Is that we, are, we will quickly experience these stress tests to our faith. My wife when, came to Christ when she was in her late teens. When, when she came to Perth and attended college, she came to Christ. And um, now she um, was brought up in a non-Christian family and, um, who were very supportive, very accepting parents and family. Um, but even when she became a Christian, even her parents, who are normally very accepting and supportive of all her decisions, expressed some concern about this new faith that's suddenly taken over her life. Why do you need to go to this camp? Why do you need to go to church so much? Why do you need to serve so much? Are you studying enough? All these questions started coming up suddenly by her once supportive parents. And her parents are awesome, right? Uh, they're probably watching, <laughs> the, 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 the <laughs> joining in our service. Um, and they're Christians now, praise God. But back then they weren't. And, and you know, when she first came to Christ, she experienced some kind of pushback to her faith. My dad, when he became a Christian, he faced no opposition from his family. Not a word was said. But interestingly, the moment he decided to get baptized, he didn't tell anyone, he just said, I'm going to get baptized. He was just so convicted by it. I'm going to get baptized. Suddenly, out of nowhere, opposition sprung up, literally from everywhere. Suddenly, he would be hearing news articles, news articles about how this family disowned their child because, you know, of their faith and that kind of thing, and then friends would come up to him. Suddenly, all these concerns started bubbling to the surface, right? These were stress tests to their faith. When I was pastoring Vibe, the Vibe ministry, um, students um, who were in vocational um, studies and tertiary studies. Time and time again, I heard story after story about how these young people would start taking their faith seriously, suddenly, suddenly experienced pushback and opposition from their once supportive family. Suddenly, they couldn't come to services anymore. Suddenly, they couldn't serve anymore. Why? And I, I'm not digging against, I'm, I have no problems with family. I know they out of the goodness of their heart, they were trying to protect their children. But what, what's the point? Is that these people were experiencing stress tests to their faith, right? This opposition to their faith. And many of us have or will experience these stress tests to our faith. This is that hot sun that Jesus was talking about in the parable, in the story. Blasting its heat of our passion and enthusiasm, testing the depth of our conviction. And these stress tests to our faith are not limited to when we just accept Christ. They happen throughout our faith journey. Throughout our faith journey, even now, we are facing it today. One of the big ways we are encountering this in our world, I think, is in the form of polarizing worldviews. Polarizing worldviews. See, the Christian worldview is no longer shared by many people in our social context. And by social context, I also mean the voices that we hear and the communities we engage in online, on social media. Because hey, truth be told, right, many of you are more engaged with what's happening overseas than what's happening in Perth, right? You read more news about what's happening in America than what you do about what's happening in Perth, okay? So our social context is not just our local physical context, it's our global context, our online context, okay? And the people within, we interact with day to day, locally, physically and online, probably do not share the Christian worldview of how life should be lived, of what is good and what is bad. And this has resulted in a spiritual and intellectual environment where the Christian way of thinking and living is no longer praised as good 
In fact, in some circles, depending on who you interact with, maybe the pendulum has swung all the way to the other end, and to be a Christian is, is, is bad. In fact, maybe to hold to a traditional biblical worldview is now considered outdated, intolerant, unloving, and maybe even evil. Even evil. And to be really specific, I'm talking about these issues of sex, relationships, race, inclusivism, tolerance, acceptable use of our bodies, and all these kind of important topics that people are now concerned about. If you hold to a traditional Christian worldview, you may not be singing the same song as the people around you. And if you express those views, you may experience some very harsh opposition. Maybe some people will have some very critical things to say, not just about what you believe, but you, yourself. What is this? This is that harsh sunlight that, we, that Jesus is talking about. This opposition that we are facing today. This is the stress test that many people, maybe you, are facing whenever you go to work, whenever you attend school, whenever you go online, listen to a video, watch a video, you are experiencing this kind of stress test. But, but, did you know that when the church was formed, they experienced this too? When the church was formed, when the early church arose and got started, they were in an environment, they were immersed in a world where their views were considered evil, they were considered weird, they were considered divisive, they were considered evil. It was evil to be a Christian. And I think now more than ever, we share a strong kingship with the early church. And the same challenge that was given to them, the same encouragement, the same solution that was given to them when they encountered opposition is the same encouragement, solution, and challenge that is given to us today. And it is to persevere. Persevere. Perseverance is the greatest and most powerful defense against the fires of opposition. And in this parable, especially when we come to the soil of the shallow soil that quickly sprung up enthusiastically and with joy, but then quickly withered away, was the problem was that it had no perseverance, right? It had no perseverance. And the scary thing about this is that the initial response was joyful. The initial response was quick growth, enthusiasm, passion. But then it didn't last. The problem with this response was that it had no lasting power, it had no perseverance. And what Jesus is making us aware of is that, and this is an important spiritual reality for us to learn, is that what truly counts is not our profession of faith, but the perseverance of our faith. What truly counts is not the profession of our faith, but the perseverance of our faith. Now, I'm not saying that the profession of, of our faith does not matter. No, it's immensely important. Let me put it to you this way. Let's just say when you're out there, someone comes up to you, someone new comes up to you and tells you, hey, I'm a marathon runner. I'm a marathon runner. Now, what is a safe assumption for you to make about that person? That the person has started a marathon race or that the person has finished a marathon race? It's the, person, the only person that can say, I have run a marathon race is not the one that has started it, but the one that finished it, right? Right? Otherwise, all of us can be marathon runners. <laughs> but that doesn't make sense at all, right? It's those who finish the race, they get to claim the title. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. The true Christians, the ones that truly follow Jesus are not the ones who say, Jesus, wherever you go, I will go. It's those who actually do it. That wherever Jesus goes, they are there. They are there. Even if they fall away, even if they deny him at some point, they come back to him. It's those who persevere, who make it to the end. Now, starting the race is important, absolutely. Without starting the race, you can't finish it. But once you've started the race, what is important? It's putting one foot in front of the other and making sure that you finish the race. Who are the followers of Christ then? It is not those who have only professed their faith in Him. It is those who live it out and last all the way to the end. And the 
the key to cultivating, the key to that is developing this persevering kind of faith, this grit, this robustness in our faith. And how do we do this? Well, what was the problem with the soil? What was the problem with the soil that just purely ran on enthusiasm for a bit? Is the problem was that it had no depth. It had no depth. So what's the, what's the solution for us? Build depth, right? Build depth. How do we do that? How do we do that? Two things. The equation for depth is like this. Spiritual depth equals knowledge plus obedience. Knowledge plus obedience. We need to have both. We need to have both. Now, for some people, they think it's just knowledge. Spiritual depth is just knowing more about God. No, no, it's not. Because see, if you have knowledge but no obedience, right, what you will cultivate is probably a pharisaical, hypocritical, pride-filled Christianity. We know much, but we don't live it out much. What is one of the major contributions to the loss of trust in the church? I, I think it's when all people see is a whole bunch of professing Christians who talk a lot, but don't live it out. Who say a lot of righteous things, who say a lot of things that they claim to be truths, but their lives do not match the righteousness that they espouse. Now, we are, many of us struggle with sin. Many of us are not perfect. But you know what? If you, we were honest about that, if we were honest that, hey, I haven't got it all together. I have questions too. I have doubts. I have fears. I haven't got it all together. A lot of people would actually respond very well. That's actually very, and a very attractive thing nowadays because you're being authentic. You're being genuine. And people have no problem with a Christian struggling with sin. They have no problems with that because you know what? They're imperfect, you're imperfect. They can relate to that. They're attracted to that. What, re what is repulsive is a Christian that says all these things but doesn't live anything like that. That is repulsive. Isn't that repulsive to us? A person who acts all high and mighty but is rotten to the core? That is repulsive. And that's what we can breed and cultivate if all we have is a lot of knowledge, but no obedience. We know a lot about God, but we don't live any of it out in our lives. What if we took what we knew and we just put that into practice? Even what you knew right now about God, about the gospel. What if you just went, you know what, I'm gonna to respond to that I'm going to live that out faithfully. What would happen? Imagine if every single one of us, imagine if your connect group, every single person just obeyed what they knew about God, what would happen? What would happen? What do you think would happen? Revival would instantly spring up, right? It'd be almost immediate, without a doubt. Just people taking their faith seriously and going, I'm going to live what I, this truth that I read about all day, that I say, yes, I believe in the gospel, I believe Jesus Christ died for me. If we just lived that out, really, and allowed it to transform our lives, the world would be set on fire by Jesus. Like, the kingdom of God would be established on earth. Like, the church would be this beautiful bride that, that Jesus planned it for it to be. Right? It, without it, I have no doubt in my mind that that is what would happen. And that is when knowledge meets obedience we get this beautiful picture of Christianity and the church. So we need knowledge and obedience. Now, without obedience, without knowledge, and that's not to say knowledge is not good. Knowledge is very good. We need both because obedience without knowledge leads to a stunted, immature kind of Christianity because we can only obey as much as we know, right? A one-year-old pooping in their nappy is cute. But a 15-year-old pooping in the nappy is not so cute, right? Just as a parent, any good parent, you would want your child to go from crawling to walking to running to jumping, right? You wouldn't be happy with them just going crawling and just being satisfied with that. I'm good with crawling. I can master crawling. I'm an expert in crawling. You would not be happy with that, right? Any well-developed child needs to progress in their development and maturity. In the same way, every single believer, if you say yes to Jesus, 
We need to be growing in our faith. And that means learning more about who God is and growing in our personal knowledge of who God is. Do you get the distinction? It's not just about knowing more information about God, it's about learning more about Him personally as well. We need both, we need both. And when we do that, as we do that, we put it into practice. We'll live it out, we respond in faith and obedience. And that breeds and cultivates depth. That person is a person of spiritual depth. And a person with spiritual depth is unshakable. Unshakable. Maybe we need to build some depth in this new year. The third response, the third response um, is represented by um, the seed that fell among thorns. And the response that people gave the, 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 that is represented by this soil is that of convenient submission. Convenient submission. It is when someone receives the truth of the gospel, they believe it, believe Jesus is Lord, and they start growing. But at some point in our faith journey, it could be days, weeks, months, hey, maybe even years down the track, that we start encountering parts of Jesus and parts of Christianity that we struggle to accept and follow. See, Christianity, this faith, is fine and is easy as long as it's not inconvenient. As long as it's not inconvenient. It's easy to say yes to Jesus as long as he doesn't demand anything that I really care about or that really concerns me. What often happens is when we say yes to Christ, when we come to Jesus and we invite him into our lives, we unconsciously erect no entry signs at different parts of our lives, right? For example, maybe when you really wanted Jesus to renovate your thought life, right? And you invited him into your life to renovate your thought life, your anxiety, how you see yourself, and that kind of thing. And he has been doing that redemptive work. You've been seeing transformation and change in how you think about yourself, how you see the world, how you see other people. That's been incredible, right? Or maybe you've invited him into your relationships. You want him to transform and help and restore the broken relationships in your life, with your family, with your friends. And you've been seeing that gradual, slow restoration process with the people closest to you. Or maybe it's your career, or maybe it's your finances, or maybe it's your dreams. You've invited Jesus into one part of your life and you've been seeing that transformation. But now, Jesus is starting to knock on other areas of your life. Maybe he's now starting to ask you about your career. Hey, let me have your career. Oh no, Jesus, you have my thought patterns and they've been very good. You have my family, which is very good. But don't ask about my career. I've got my career. Maybe he's asking about your dreams and ambitions that you've held very dear. And he's going, no, 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 Jesus. You, 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 have, you have my Sunday, right? But don't ask me about my dreams and ambitions. Or maybe he's asking you for your time. Your time. You give Jesus your Sunday. Hey, you give Jesus another day of the week as well. Jesus, don't ask me for my mornings as well. That's a bit too much, right? You can have my Sunday, you know, my Friday, but don't ask me about my mornings. Don't ask me about my nights. Don't ask me for another night, Jesus, this is enough. You're getting too involved in my life. Christianity is easy as long as, as it's convenient. But what happens when it starts becoming inconvenient? What happens when Jesus starts knocking on the other doors of your life? And you know what happens is that Whenever we come to God or draw near to Him, it seems like He always brings this up. He always brings this up. And when this happens to us, maybe you feel that in your life, this growing unease of something in your life, maybe it's a lifestyle habit or a lifestyle choice, you know, this growing unease, right? It's as if God is pressing His finger on this thing, right? And it's starting to become a bit uncomfortable. What this reveals in our hearts is that there have been two kingdoms that have been jostling for control all along. You haven't realized it because for the longest time there's been peace in the neighborhood. There's been no conflict because you have invited in Jesus to a parts of your life, right? And that's been fine. 
But now, this kingdom of Christ in your life is starting to venture out into other areas. And it's starting to lock heads with the other parts of your life that you most care about. And that's where the conflict and the unease is revealing, okay? And the thing that you, we got to know about this battle that ra wages, rages within us is that it is quiet. It is subtle, and many of us don't even realize it's happening. People in your life probably don't realize it's happening. You maybe are totally oblivious to the, to the fact that it's happening in you. And unless we do something about it, unless we get involved in the fight ourselves, oftentimes the kingdom of Christ within us will lose to the kingdom of self. And we often start drifting away from Christ and we describe it in Christian lingo as backsliding. Right? A backsliding Christian, I'm starting backsliding. What is this? It's when the kingdom of Christ starts losing to the kingdom of self. Imagine a relationship where um, you just start dating someone and at first, you know, um, this person is a very private person. He, they only allow you in certain areas of their life. And for the first few weeks, for maybe even the first year, that's okay. You know, you don't meet their family. You hear a bit about their dreams and ambitions, but that's about it. And that's okay. But once it passed like the three-year mark, I think it's fair to say that you should know a bit about their family, right? You should know a bit more about their dreams and ambitions. You should know a bit more about them, right? Because the natural progression of intimacy is that you learn more and more about a person, right? It's really weird if a person goes, after three years of your relationship, just goes, you're not meaning my family. Stop asking about that, right? Okay? My family's my family, okay? So you can have everything else in my life, but you're never meaning my family. Isn't that weird? Would, wouldn't your intimacy take a hit? But see, you have every part of their life. But the moment they start withholding a part of their life from you, it's impossible for your relationship to not take a hit. Why? Because it hurts. It hurts. That's what we do to Jesus. That's what we do to Jesus. As we grow in our intimacy with him, as we grow in our relationship with him, he asks for more and more and more. Not because he's possessive and wants all of you, but he wants to redeem you. He wants to bless your life. He's already blessed your life, hasn't he? in the areas that you've given to him. Have you already seen the kingdom of God manifested in your life? What does that look like? It looks like freedom. It looks like blessings. It, you, that part of your life is beginning to flourish. Imagine that in every part of your life. That's what Jesus wants to do. But when we, when we withhold that from him, it's impossible for him not to feel hurt. And it's impossible for our relationship with him not to suffer. Therefore, what can we do? Is there anything that we can do about the condition of our hearts? Well, yeah, actually there is. The, the way Jesus describes this ground that leads to this response is that it's thorny, right? Uh, as the plant grows, the thorns grow with it and it starts strangling the plant. Okay, so what do you do with the thorny ground? You remove your thorns, right? Easy, remove the thorns, pull them out. Hebrews chapter 12, verse one. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And this means two things. Two ways we can start taking off the things that hinder us. Two ways we can start removing the thorns from our lives. The first way, surrender. Surrender. Let us let go of our hold of these areas of our lives that God may be trying to get involved in. Let us surrender those things to him. Um, Jonathan Rumi, uh, whom some of you may be familiar with, he is the actor that plays Jesus in The Chosen, um, that show that's based on the Gospels. Um, it's pretty cool, actually, if you haven't watched it before. Um, now, before landing the role of Jesus, Jonathan Rumi actually ha hit a low point in his life and career. He tells the story about one morning, he woke up and he literally had $20 in his pocket and $100 owing the bank. And it maxed out his credit cards. He had no jobs lined up. He had no prospective checks that were coming. He literally did not know, did not know how he was gonna survive that day. 
and he had reached this breaking point in his life and career. Because for the longest time, you see, for Jonathan, he had given a lot of his life to God, except his career. His career was the one thing that he still had control of. But at that moment, when he was literally $80 in debt, he knelt down to God and prayed to him. If there's anything else I should be doing, please let me, sh please show me what it is because this is really hard. And he remembers, he recounts, he, remembering, saying the words, I surrender, I surrender. See, he allowed God in, but when it, to many parts of his life, but when it came to his career, he thought, I know better. I got this, God. I'm the actor here. Don't worry, it's Hollywood. I know Hollywood, God. But he had reached his breaking point and he had surrendered. At that point, he surrendered it all to God. Later that day, he left his apartment, went for a walk to collect himself. He bought a breakfast sandwich with the remaining $20 that he had. If I was him, I would not buy a breakfast sandwich. But anyway, um, he bought it with whatever money he had left. And when he came back home that day, he miraculously found four checks in the mail that allowed him to survive. For three more months, three months later, the writer and director of The Chosen called and offered him the role of Jesus and his life has never been the same. That day was that turning point for him where he stopped clinging on to the thing that mattered most to him, which was his career, and started giving it over to God. See, he, not, he thought he knew better, but God knew better. He thought he had his best interests at heart, but actually God had his best interests at heart. When we give over that which matters most to God, see how God will bring the kingdom of God and manifest it in that area of your life. And see what redemption, see what flourishing he will bring to you. Because see, when Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God, what did it look like? It looked like healing. It looked like freedom. It looked like restoration. It looked like people flourishing in communities. The people that were ostracized and forgotten by the world, they were suddenly brimming with new life and hope. That's what it looks like when a person surrenders their life over to God and allows Him to manifest His kingdom in their lives. Surrender, surrender. Are there things that we need to surrender over to God today? The second thing, the second thing that we need to do maybe is submission. And there's a slight difference here because you see, there may be some areas that we have control over and these are things that we need to surrender to God, lay it down before Him. But the other areas of our life that it's not so much that you have a control of it, but it has a control of you. It has a hold on you. These may be habits, these may be lifestyle choices, these may even be relationships, toxic relationships that are gripping your life and bringing you down. And you cannot surrender these things because you don't have any control of it. You couldn't even if you wanted to, maybe you've tried. Maybe you come forward for before and go, I surrender this, this relationship over to you. Nothing seems to happen. Why? Because you don't have a control over it. It has control over you. What needs to happen then? Well, we need to break its hold over us. And the only way that can happen is by first, sometimes it's got such a hold over us that we need God to come and bring his battering, battering ram and break the walls of this fortress in our lives. And maybe some of you are familiar with this term. Some of, sometimes we call it strongholds in our lives. We call it a stronghold because it feels like a fortress. We can't let go of, we can't defeat it. What often needs to happen is that we come before God and we allow him, we invite the Holy Spirit to come and bring deliverance. We come and allow the Holy Spirit to bring healing. We come and allow the Holy Spirit to exert His power over this area of our lives and destroy the power that this has over us. Okay? Because sometimes, some things in our lives are too difficult, have too, are too entrenched in our lives for us to discipline ourselves out of. No amount of discipline you've tried can set you free from this. What you need is for God to demolish the power of this thing over your life. And maybe that's what needs to happen today. That's, maybe that's what needs to happen today. There's, there's no shame in that. In fact, that's what the kingdom of God comes to bring. Restoration, healing. Let God become king over your life and let the king come and rule in every part of your life. That's what you are doing 
when you come and offer that part of your life to Him. And once that happens, right, we cannot stop there. And many of us stop there. Many of us just come and go, God set me free, and God sets you free, and go, yes, amen, praise the Lord, continue on with our day and continue on with our life. But we cannot stop there. There's a second step to this. When God sets you free and demolishes the power of sin over your life, we then need to bring that thing before God daily and submit it before Him. We need to come daily probably and make that thing bow its knee before God. Because see, the Holy Spirit, what He does is He will come and mortally wound that enemy in your life. He will come and pierce that enemy, right? And be mortally wounded. It has no power over you anymore. What then you need to do is drag its, its fallen body before the throne of God and make it kneel before Him until it is dead. And that's the step oftentimes we forget about. Paul describes it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave. Not that it has control over me, but I now have control over it. So that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Maybe some, what, another way the Bible describes this is self-control, self-mastery. After the Holy Spirit has demolished the power of sin over your life, we then need to exert self-control over our body, over our minds. We need to drag that broken body before God and submit it before Him. Make it, make your body, make your mind obey the Lord. That's self-control. That's beating your body and making it your slave. And we do this by what? Prayer. Prayer. Asking your community to pray for you, to intercede with you. It means fasting for an activity, or maybe just engaging in a period of fasting. It means setting up channels of accountability. It means removing things from your life that lead you down those paths of self-destruction. It means all these things. It means seeking help from somewhere, someone, if you need it. But what we need to do is we need to be aggressive in our onslaught and assault against these areas of our lives that have control over us so that Christ can have authority over it. And then when that happens, when we start building that life of depth, when we start freeing the soil from all these thorns, what is left is good soil. What is left is this good soil. And then we can start responding in Pure conviction, pure conviction. See, I don't think anyone here would like to and initially says yes to God half-heartedly. I don't think any of us would say, if I was to ask you, hey, which soil do you want to be like? Which soil do you want to be like? I don't think anyone would say, I want to be thorny ground. That's my lane, I want to stick to it, you know? Everyone, if, if I asked you, you would say, I want to be like the good soil. Of course, I want to be like the good soil. But the problem is that we struggle with it. How do I become like the good soil? Jesus describes the distinctiveness of the good soil as those who hear the word and understand it. And the kind of understanding that Jesus is referring to is not simply those who know Jesus or understood what he was saying, or even those who appreciated what he was saying and teaching, but it was those who were convicted by it. It's those who were convinced that this was truth and they needed to change their lives because of it, in response to it. And this conviction is maybe something that you want. Do you want this life of conviction? Do you want this life that is you know, unhindered? No holds barred, I am following Jesus. What we need to do is we can clean up the sores in our lives. Maybe for you, it's just that depth 
that depth of relationship that you need. Maybe this year it's time to improve that. Maybe it's time to work on that. Select a Bible reading plan. Maybe start attending connect groups again. And I don't want to make the gospel all about do, 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 but rather this is a response to what Jesus is already doing in your life. You're already feeling that uneasy, you're already feeling that pull and that call of God back to Him. This is how we respond to Him. Or maybe for you, it is freeing those thorns, removing those civil habits from your life. And when we do that, what is left is freedom to respond to God with no holds barred. That freedom, that pure conviction can start being born. And conviction breeds fruitfulness. Conviction breeds fruitfulness. And our fruitfulness will be supernaturally large. I want you to notice this, right? The good soil, what kind of fruitfulness does it experience? 100-fold, 60-fold, 30-fold. Now, I don't want you to get hung up over the fact that only some seed produces 30-fold. Some just get caught up on that. Oh, how come only 30-fold? Now, in the audience's mind, in Jesus' audience's mind, to get a yield of 20 times that which you sow is already miraculous. You have hit jackpot if you get just 20 times. 20 times you sow some seed, you get 20 times back. That is incredible. Jesus, the lowest number that he quotes is 30 times or more. What Jesus is revealing here is that even a life that is just a little bit submitted to God will bear extreme supernatural fruitfulness. Just a bit of your life that's given over to God, just a bit of Him, you, that's given over to Him, no holds barred, purely convicted to Him, one truth that sinks in and starts bearing fruit, that one truth, that one passage will transform your life and transform the world around you. You will be supernaturally fruitful. One life given over to the Lord will transform your community, your families, the people around you. And that's a life that starts becoming freed from all these things. That's a life that starts putting knowledge into action. That's a life that continues growing in our knowledge of God. Do you want that today? Do you want that in the new year? Well, let's start by doing that. Let's all stand. And um, then I just want to give you the opportunity. I want to give you the opportunity to make that first step. To make that first step. Maybe for you, you say, yes, I want to be, I want to respond in pure conviction, that good soil to the Lord. I want my life to be fruitful to Him. And if that is you, maybe for you, it's that spiritual depth that you need. Hey, you start today. You start today. Sign up for a Bible reading plan. You get involved and involved in classes, in Bible study, and whatever it is. You spend that time with the Lord daily to get to know Him more. But maybe for some of you, you need to remove some thorns. There's some things you need to surrender to God. Or maybe, maybe you need God to set you free from some things that have a hold over you. And if that is you, can you come forward? We want to see God's power exerted in your life and His kingdom established in it. So I want you to invite you to the front. As we sing this song, come to the front quickly and we will pray with you.